Lord Jesus Christ, we proclaim that you are king. Many other things rule in our hearts. Set our eyes on you today. Give us clear sight to see you for who you really are. And in your mighty power, your mighty mercy and love, transform us, Lord, more into your image. Free us from bondage to sin and death and make your people a light in the city. We pray in your name, Jesus, our King. Amen. Well, today we head into Holy Week. And we meet Jesus on the way to Jerusalem, about to make his triumphal entry. Uh, Today we're going to look at what this day meant for those who were present, for those who saw it happen. And we're also going to consider what it means for us. You have uh, this passage uh, we read outside. I don't know if all of you got to hear it, uh, but it's from from Luke uh, chapter 19. So it's in your bulletin. I encourage you to keep it handy so that you can look at it. what was this event all about? Why is there a Palm Sunday? Why do we make such a big deal of this, of this day in this particular passage of Scripture? Well, for several years, Jesus had been traveling around doing incredible things. In the process, he'd stirred up a lot of speculation about who he was. There seemed to be several possibilities. Uh, some people said that he was a teacher, a rabbi. Uh, some said a prophet. Some people thought just maybe this could be the Messiah himself. What's interesting about that is that Jesus, in many ways, allowed the questions surrounding his identity to persist on purpose. Um, He wanted this to happen. Uh, In the Gospel of Mark, we see this especially. Um, He frequently heals people and then tells them not to tell anybody what happened. There are several occasions where Jesus makes a specific point that his time has not yet come to be revealed. And even John the Baptist, who is the very first to recognize him as the Messiah at the midpoint of his ministry, is unsure if that really is uh, who Jesus is. And that all seems really strange to us. Why would Jesus want to keep his identity a secret? Well, there are layers to this, but one of the reasons is because revealing himself as Messiah would have communicated something very different than he intended. It would have been tantamount to a declaration of war. Messiah, of course, means anointed one. Uh, The Greek word for Messiah is Christ. Uh, So whenever we say Jesus Christ, uh, that's not his last name, Uh, Christ is a title that means king, but not just any king, like king of kings, lord of lords, King Jesus. Now for first century Jews, the Messiah was the ultimate priest king. He was the chosen one, promised and waited for. He was God's righteous representative who would bring deliverance to God's people and judgment on his enemies in a permanent kind of way. The Romans and the Jewish leaders who owed them allegiance certainly knew all this very well. So anyone claiming to be the Messiah was explicitly challenging their rule. In other words, claiming to be the Messiah was the kind of thing that would get you killed very quickly. Of course, Jesus wasn't afraid to die, but because so many of the Jewish people were waiting for the Messiah to come and lead them to victory, the appearance of a credible Messiah, and Jesus was certainly that, would create a huge response among the people. If he had declared himself publicly to be the Messiah, he would have become a kind of lightning rod that everyone ready to fight for liberation would have flocked to. And there were times when Jesus he almost had armies marching in his name in spite of his avoiding it actively. After he fed the 5,000, Jesus had to leave quickly because it says that they were getting ready to come and take him by force to make him king. 
The point in all this is not that Jesus wanted to avoid a confrontation. It's that he was preparing for a different kind of battle than either Rome or Israel expected the Messiah to fight. He absolutely intended to bring deliverance to God's people and judgment to God's enemies. But the scope of his fight was not national. It was cosmic. So what we're seeing here is that the difference between popular expectation in the Messiah's mission and Jesus' actual mission, it gave Jesus a reason to keep his identity quiet. That is, for a while, until the exact moment came to reveal his identity. That's what the triumphal entry is all about. The triumphal entry is the moment, it is the time and the way that Jesus chose to make himself publicly known as the Messiah to Israel. That's what's going on. So when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, it wasn't a random event. It wasn't just the next thing that happens in the story. This moment and its details were carefully chosen by Jesus. Now, he doesn't actually tell the people he's the Messiah. Instead, he shows them. The short ride that he takes was meant to be a picture that would speak a thousand words, and it's very clear that his message was received both by Israel and by Rome. But the imagery that he used is somewhat lost on us all these years later, so I want to make it a little more clear. The key to understanding what Jesus was saying on this ride is an Old Testament passage that he was fulfilling. It's Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, and this is uh, what I was reading over you as you walked in. This is what it says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, what stands out here is pretty obvious. Uh, The prophet says the Messiah will come riding a donkey, and Jesus comes riding a donkey. That's our continuity. That's what stands out. The question is, uh, what does the donkey mean? What is the donkey saying, in effect? What's the message in the donkey? Uh, It says, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. So that stands out to us. Uh, We would expect a great king to come riding on a mighty stallion. So when Zechariah says that the king will come humbly, we take him to mean that Jesus' ride is significant because it's not grandiose or royal in the traditional sense. We assume the donkey is a sign of Jesus' lowliness. But that's not actually what's going on here. The point isn't that Jesus is not kingly in this moment. It's actually the opposite. Because in the Old Testament, and so in the imagination of Israel in general, donkeys actually had a deep association with kingship. Uh, This starts back in uh, Genesis chapter 49, uh, when the patriarch Jacob, uh, right before he died, the last thing he really did was he he blessed his 12 sons and he prophesied over them. But the longest chunk of prophecy, the biggest bit of it, he's speaking over Judah. And he says that even though Judah's not the firstborn, that the kingship will fall to him in a lasting way. Uh, And of course, it's a long time before there's a king in Israel. But he says that the king will come from Judah. Uh, And, of course, later we see David coming in the line of Judah and Jesus, too. But this picture of the kingship being in Judah is tied to imagery. He describes a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey, being tied to a grapevine. And so that picture is in the imagination of Israel going forward of the king uh, being connected to this donkey. Later on, 
when Saul becomes the first king of Israel, it happens when he goes looking for his father's donkeys, but instead finds the prophet Samuel who anoints him to be king. So Saul goes looking for donkeys and finds the crown instead. Then whenever David, the the sort of prototype of the Messiah, uh, finally decides to pass on his kingship to one of his sons, he shows Israel that he's chosen Solomon specifically by having him put on his donkey and ridden around among the people. Finally, we have, uh, completing the circle, this Zechariah's prophecy saying that the Messiah will come on a donkey. So there's all this imagery all through the Old Testament connecting the, the God's king with, uh, with donkeys. Uh, so it's surprising to us, but the donkey is actually kingly. It's a sign, Jesus riding the donkey is a sign that he is king. Not just any king, but the Messiah. So why does it also say that he comes humbly? Well, the prophecy is setting the donkey in contrast to the king's other traditional mount, the war horse. Whenever we hear verses 9 and 10, we tend to separate them and imagine they're separate thoughts, but they're just one thought. So hear them again together. It says, Your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. So he's making a distinction between the donkey and the war horse. A king goes to war on a horse, or behind one, pulled in a chariot. But he comes home to rule in peace on a donkey. So the donkey here is a symbol of kingship, but of a particular kind of kingship. Of a king who is coming in peace to rule. So this was a, this, this was a sign, Jesus coming on the donkey was a sign... Um, to the Jewish people and to the Roman people that cut against the assumptions they had that we already talked about, about the Messiah and the fact that he would come with war. Jesus riding a donkey into Jerusalem essentially says, look, I'm not storming this city to take it. I am coming home to rule what is already mine. And the people get the message. Their response makes that crystal clear. Look at the shout that they raise. They say, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They are saying, yes, we recognize that you are the king, the Messiah sent from God, and we celebrate your coming. Let your peace extend from here to heaven. They understand exactly what he's saying. The Pharisees also understand, uh, but they want to push back. Look at what they say. Teacher. They say, teacher. The first word to him is teacher. In other words, they're trying to reframe who he is. We know who you really are. Just a rabbi on a donkey. Tell these people they've misunderstood what you're doing here. And Jesus says, these people's shouts, their praise is so correct, so true, so necessary, that if they didn't say these things, nature itself would speak. In this moment, he is saying the speculation can end because he is affirming the people's praise, which is straight out of Psalm 118. And saying, yes, I am the Messiah, and I come in peace. But this opens up another mystery, another question. How can the king come in peace? How can the ruler of Israel ride into Jerusalem while it is occupied by enemy forces? How can he do that in peace? Well, this seems strange to us because we tend to confuse peace with passivity or avoidance. You see, we think that Peace means not causing any trouble, not bothering anybody or causing a fuss. Jesus 
he comes in peace, but he's going to make a big fuss. <laughs> Jesus is not being passive. He is not avoiding anything. In fact, riding the donkey into the city is shockingly bold. It is a direct challenge to the rulers of this world and the powers and principalities behind them. Jesus seems to be saying, in effect, here I am, crown me or kill me, but make no mistake, I am the king. And yet bold as he is, kingly as he is, he does come in peace. We see his humility in the fact that there's no army with him. He will not use force to take control. He will not leverage position or connections or money or armies or any of the powers that earthly rulers use to get things done, to get his way, to take control, to take his rightful place. He comes with absolute authority, but completely without coercion. In this, again, we see his, the true nature of his humility. And we see his humility again when we look into his eyes. If we read just a little bit further in the passage, we see exactly what's on his mind as he's riding up into Jerusalem. You see, he's not defiant in this action. It is not pride that's moving him. He's moved by pity. A sad kind of love. Because even as he rides through the cheering crowds, he knows that this people will reject him. So he cries cries as he rides. He weeps, not for himself or for the cross that's coming, but for them. Knowing what's going to become of them as a result of their rejecting him. Both in the sense that within 40 years, Jerusalem will be destroyed by Rome. And he knows it. But also in the deeper spiritual sense. This humble ride, this ride with tears in his eyes, this ride without an army will of course also be interpreted as weakness and naivety by those who seek to destroy him. You see, they think that he's a threat, but they think that he's made a mistake. They believe that he's overplayed his hand here, but it's not a mistake. Jesus has chosen this moment to reveal himself as Messiah precisely because he has also chosen this moment to die. With this ride, Jesus announces that he's king and simultaneously puts himself into the hands of the people whose power he's challenging. Now Rome will not be able to ignore his claim made so publicly in front of tens of thousands of pilgrims coming into the city for the Passover. But also there will be no opportunity for the Jewish people to muster a revolt in his name. His challenge will be accepted, but it will also remain a peaceful challenge. Jesus has chosen his moment well. But this is the right moment above all because it is also Passover. It is the great celebration of the Exodus. The moment of remembrance of when God defeated all the powers of Egypt and led his people out of bondage. The memory of God passing judgment on Egypt but passing over his own people when he saw the blood of the lambs on their doorposts. How can the king come in peace into a city ruled by an enemy? The king of kings comes in peace. The lion of Judah comes without an army because he comes as the Passover lamb also. And it is, it, it, and it is as lamb that he will do battle. It's interesting that the path, there are a lot of ways to come into Jerusalem, but the path that he took leading from Bethpage across the Mount of Olives up into the city was the same path that the sacrificial Passover lamb traveled every year as a part of the Passover celebration around this same time. 
And it's fascinating that the shouts that the people were raising from Psalm 118, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. If you look at the very next thought in that psalm, the next words that are said, it says, bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. They weren't saying that, but Jesus, who is the word of God, knew the psalm. And those words must have echoed in his ears. It's a call of praise to the the Messiah come from God, but it's also a call to bring forth the sacrificial lamb. And so he went. And thus it was not by the force of arms or armies that the creator of the world came to liberate his people and bring his kingdom. He came as sacrifice, his weapon, the cross, the blood spilled, his own. The exodus that he accomplished wasn't merely saving Israel from a foreign oppressor. That had happened several times for Israel before, but it never lasted. Each time Israel was rescued from human oppressors, they remained slaves to the power of sin and death. Their own brokenness never ceased to oppress them and lead them into bondage. But Jesus' battle, the exodus that he would lead, was from the powers of sin and death themselves, and not just from their human agents. Again, he wasn't avoiding the Romans and Herodians. He was going beyond them to destroy the powers behind them. His victory then wasn't just for Israel but for all of the fallen world. So friends, this is the meaning of Palm Sunday. This is what it's about. It's why we celebrate today. It's the day when Jesus was revealed as king and as sacrifice, as lion and as lamb, as Lord and as savior, on his way to be enthroned on the cross, to fight and win against the forces of darkness through the power of of his own mercy, through the power of suffering love. That's what we're celebrating today. The lion who is the lamb, the savior who is the Lord. But then we have to turn and ask, what does this mean for us? What difference does this make? What does it change for our lives today? What does Palm Sunday mean? Well, if you can see him, if you can see him on that donkey riding down into the valley and up towards Jerusalem, with tears in his eyes, that I would ask you to look again and to see him riding right toward you, to the Jerusalem of your heart, of your mind, of your life. Because Jesus comes to us today and every day, much as he came to Jerusalem that day 2,000 years ago. He comes as lion and as lamb. He comes as king who brings peace. He comes as savior and he comes as Lord. These two titles cannot be separated. He is both Savior and Lord. And that means that his claim over us is total. It's complete. He comes as king. But it is very easy for us to ignore it because he comes without coercion. He comes without force. And so we find ourselves faced with the same choice that Israel had. As we look at him coming to us, claiming authority over our lives, but not enforcing it. Will we crown him? Or will we take up the shouts of crucify? Why would we turn away from such a peaceable king? Because he is peaceful, but he is not passive. There are other powers ruling in us that we prefer, that he intends to overthrow. Other loyalties and allegiances that come before him That if we are honest, we are willing to sacrifice him too. 
We do this in large ways and in small ways every day. Every day as we're faced with the choice to name Christ king in our hearts, in our lives, in our actions, or not. So the question that this day, that his ride begs for us is, will we recognize this king? And if we do recognize him, do we merely recognize him as the people did with shouts that quickly turned from praise to condemnation? Again, why does that happen? It happens because Jesus is coming to unseat things in our hearts. So what is he coming to overthrow in you? What other loyalties and allegiances does he challenge? The voice of the religious leaders echoes here for me. Because they, the, the other lords in our hearts, the other things that command our allegiance, want to make the same move that they did. They want to recognize Jesus as merely a good teacher, as good advice, but not as king. How do those voices in your heart try to silence his claims over your life? As he comes to us, he comes to rule. And if we follow him, he's going to invite us uh, to go in the same way that he goes, in this way that is both full of peace and challenge. And he's going to challenge us and and, and force us to ask the question, uh, where am I using force to get my way? But at the same time, where am I avoiding conflict to, pr- pr- to protect myself? Where do I close my eyes to injustice to keep a false kind of peace? Jesus neither avoids the conflict nor uses force to resolve it. He comes with the power of his present suffering love. And he challenges, challenges us to go in the same way. But if we're going to walk that hard road, the deeper question continues to loom. What other lords live in our Jerusalem? What other allegiances are we enslaved to? As we come to the rail in a moment, the invitation is to, having named those lords, having seen them, having identified them, maybe even having seen the ways that they would make Jesus merely a teacher in our lives and not our king, the invitation is to come and bring those lords and submit them to our true king who is Christ, the Lord. Jesus. We may not be strong enough to conquer these lords in our own hearts any more than uh, Israel was able to overthrow the Romans in that moment. But Jesus is stronger, and he has already defeated them. So come and receive his victory in your life. Come and receive his rule in your life, because wherever Jesus is Lord, he is also Savior. Wherever he is in charge, wherever he reigns, that is the place that salvation appears. Not in the place where he's teacher, in the place where he is Lord. That is where we find salvation. So come to the rail and receive the free gift, receive his mercy, receive his grace that is stronger than all the force of the world. Jesus is Lord. May he rule in us now and always. Please pray with me. Lord Christ, we confess as we see you ride into Jerusalem that we also sometimes suspect that you are naive and weak. We look to other stronger things in our imagination to help us get through the world and to to get what we need. But we look to you, Lord, today, and we say that you are more powerful than all the forces of the world. Your weakness is greater than their strength. And we ask for the grace to submit to you in every part of our lives, in every detail, 
that your rule, that your salvation would transform us and that your kingdom would come in us and through us, Lord Christ, our King. Amen.